Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. As you know, whenever we see a book that we think you ought to read, we try to get the author, or in this case, one of the co-editors, in to talk about the book. This book is Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past. It could not be more timely, given some of the news we've had this week about disinformation and the sort of industrial production of it at places like Fox. And we are very fortunate to be joined by Kevin Cruz, who's professor of history and director of the Center for Collaborative History at Princeton University, who is the co-editor of this book. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I love this book, in part because sometimes I'm a historian, in part because I have this theory, and we're not going to get into my personal philosophies here, but my, my theory is half of everything that we know that we believe to be true isn't true. And it's, you know, half is because you can't trust your memory or your parents told you lies about your past. Half of it is, or p- portion of it has to do with myths and religion and scientific misunderstanding. But, you know, historians have some of this to, to answer for as well. And I think this book was a kind of a corrective in that regard. You argue that we're in a golden age of myth-making here. I'm interested in how you view that in light of the news of the week. Yeah, well, the revelations about Fox, I don't think it was in letting us know anything we didn't already suspect, but uh, that they're willfully pushing uh, uh, lies uh, for the benefit of their, of their audience. They want to tell them what they, uh, they want to hear. And we are, I think, in a, in, a, in a golden age of disinformation, as you put it, because there's a lot, there's a lot of gold to make of disinformation. It's incredibly profitable, both for, uh, for political purposes, but also just simple for, uh, for money-making purposes. And so we've seen this over the last, it really became incredibly pronounced in the last uh, you know, five, six years, kind of the Trump era. The president uh, spewing a lot of lies and misinformation, everything from you know, his crowd was the biggest crowd or he was the best at this or whatever. All the way through to the final gasp of his term in office when he pushed forth the 1776 commission to put out a kind of patriotic 
version of American history uh, uh, that would provide patriotic education, he said. Well, that's not the purpose of history. We've seen it certainly throughout his uh, his supporters in the, in, in uh, kind of the conservative uh, media ecosphere, Fox News in particular, but others as well, uh, who are spreading this misinformation, a lot of it seemingly intentionally. You know, I sort of worry that the recent past may be prologue. Uh, if you look at Governor DeSantis in Florida and some of the other states where they're saying, no, 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 we don't want you to teach history as it was because that's uncomfortable for us. We're going to ban AP Black History. We're going to ban certain kinds of books. You know, obviously this has echoes of fascism, but, you know, it does raise the question, what happens to a country when it doesn't actually understand history? Well, it's, it's, it's very easily misled. I mean, we've, we've seen these, uh, these myths and distortions in other settings lead countries astray. The whole purpose of having an accurate understanding of the past is to know quite clearly where we've been to get a sense of where we can go. And with that, uh, if, you, if you don't have that kind of level of understanding of the past, uh, if you believe in lies, uh, that's going to lead you astray. Uh, and it's incredibly dangerous. I commend you for getting all the way through that answer without quoting George Santayana, (laughs) (laughs) where I thought it was almost inevitably going to go. But the quote is so well known that everybody in the audience already knows what what I'm getting at. The other thing I commend you is that you were able to keep the book so short. It's jam-packed with myths, but there's so many more. Each chapter in the book sort of touches on these myths, you know, whether it's America never never had an empire, or the chapter that you did on the rise of the Southern strategy, or, you know, I mean, we could go through any of these things, and myths tend to get built on other myths, American exceptionalism, how we treated or were greeted by indigenous peoples here, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me, reading it, that there is this issue of you sort of reach a critical mass of myths, and the result is anything is possible. You know, it's the the result is. I mean, as you say, people are more easily misled. Do you think there's some groups in our society that are more vulnerable to this than others? I think we're all vulnerable to it in in different ways. I think right now, though, we're seeing uh, people on the right being misled because I think there is a concerted effort to mislead them, to tell them what they already have to believe, to, to lean into that. Uh, and I think that's where uh, the real uh, distortions have gone. It doesn't mean other groups are, are immune, just the activity here has really been on the right. I was thinking of groups like evangelicals and others, though, who it's not, you know, I mean, I'm not making a judgment about religion more broadly, but you know, these are people who are saying, oh, no, we're, we're not going to buy into evolution. You know, we're going to reject science. Dinosaurs lived at the same time as cavemen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, and I mean, there's a good example. So the idea, uh, to, to lean back into U.S. history, uh, this is not a myth we cover in this book, but it's one I addressed in, my, uh, in a previous work. The idea that America is a Christian nation, uh, that you should have a blending of, of church and state. Well, it used to be that Baptists in this country were the strongest bulwark of keeping church and state separate. They were firm believers in this all the way up into, uh, you know, into the 60s. And yet they have uh, kind of abandoned their own personal history 
and really turned it on its head. And now you see groups like the Southern Baptist Convention, which used to be a real bulwark uh, of keeping church and state separate, leaning into this idea that they need to be commingled. Well, I also think for a lot of history, Baptists were felt like outsiders from the establishment religion. And the tipping point was when they thought, well, maybe we've got enough traction that with other evangelicals, we can set the narrative in the way we thought it was being set against us. I think one of the core questions here, though, is why? Why do people spread the myths? Is it just self-interest? Is it political interest? Is you know, well, who's is 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 there a pattern? Is there uh, or 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 do these things spring from uh, different kinds of origins? They spring from different kinds of origins. Uh, some of them are innocent, or, or at least I think innocent of uh, of any kind of partisan or, or or malicious motive. Things like the belief that America is not an empire, belief in American exceptionalism. These are what we call bipartisan myths that have sort of uh, spread throughout the culture. Some myths have been um, spread by people who otherwise seem to be well-meaning. Ari Kelman has a piece on the vanishing Indian uh, in the book in which he notes that D. Brown's uh, classic book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was meant to be uh, something that kind of recovered and and mourned the lost history of Native Americans, actually perpetuated some of the bad myths uh, about the the Native Americans dying off and and vanishing from our, our midst. Others have been, I think, quite malicious. So the one I talk about is the the Southern strategy, which used to just be kind of a a common fact about the Republican appeal to segregationism of the South in the 1960s. Something that all sides agreed had happened. In fact, uh, you know, a, a decade ago, the Republican leaders were openly apologizing for this. Ken Melman, the head of the RNC, Michael Steele, another RNC chair, uh, both acknowledged and apologized for this in an effort to turn the page. But we've seen in recent years an effort to deny that, to pretend it never, ever happened, uh, I guess as a way to pretend that Republicans can't be racist today by arguing that they've never been racist before. So there are some, I think, real um, uh, malicious, opportunistic lies being spread here uh, quite deliberately. Yeah, myths come in all forms. I, I, you know, I, uh, I recall that some of the historians that I read or you know, was assigned to read in high school we don't even teach anymore because their view of American history, for example, was so altered by this. And it's a myth that you talk about here, the whole lost cause mythology. And it was pretty mainstream. And in fact, not too far from where you're sitting, I think probably there was a school that used to be called the Wilson school. It's not called the Wilson school anymore because, you know, Woodrow Wilson, who was a president of Princeton as well as being the president of the United States, had bought into this stuff hook, line, and sinker. So talk talk a little bit about that. that you yeah, know, and, that that's, and that's a great example. Historians themselves are not, are not immune to this. And so there's the, the so-called Dunning School, which wasn't coming out of the South. It came out of Columbia University, uh, highly respectable, and was taught throughout uh, the early 20th century of this idea that the, the, the Civil War was a, a noble war, not thought about slavery, that the Reconstruction era was one of uh, black misrule and federal overreach and shouldn't be shouldn't be repeated. These are lessons that were learned by uh, generations of students across the North. And what's the damage here? Well, when you have someone like John F. Kennedy learning this stuff at Harvard, and then when he becomes president during the civil rights struggle, he believes uh, the first reconstruction was a horrible failure and, and not to repeat those, uh, those, those lessons he supposedly learned that were not really, uh, really true. And so was kind of uh, loath and reluctant to get into um, the civil rights struggle uh, for those reasons. He thought it was going to be a disaster. He'd learned the wrong lessons 
of history. And as uh, Karen Cox notes in her essay on Confederate monuments, this history isn't just taught in schools, it's etched across the Southern landscape in the form of Confederate memorials. Uh, memorials that are put up not right after the Civil War, but in the 1910s and 1920s, during the, uh, the kind of the depths of Jim Crow, to teach Southerners, white and black alike, a certain um, um, set of lessons. Uh, again, distortions about the past, distortions about the Civil War, and to cement that. And so when we talk about undoing those monuments today, uh, people often complain, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're destroying history. Uh, how are we going to teach the past? Well, these monuments were themselves a distortion of the actual history. And so in a lot of ways, uh, we're undoing uh, past wrongs. Or trying. I mean, I lived for a while in Alexandria, Virginia. Now I live on the other side of the river. But until like a couple of years ago, the main drag through town was Lee Highway. And still to this day, half the tourist attractions in downtown are about the Lee family and Robert E. Lee. And, you know, here is a guy who has had a reputation as being this kind of saintly general who had high values, the nobility to stand up for his home state. And, and of course, it's not that simple, right? I mean, he... No, not at all. Not at all. And, and this, this effort to venerate Lee was one that, uh, as, as lots of scholars have shown, was one that was resisted at the time. Oh, you know, Frederick Douglass, uh, on Lee's passing, notes about how he's sickened about all these kind of saccharine peons to, uh, to how great Lee was uh, when, when he had led the Confederate forces in, in defense of slavery. Uh, but there was a whitewashing uh, of his memory going on. That's something else that, uh, that Karen Cox notes uh, in that piece, is that we often hear about, oh, these monuments, these Confederate monuments to Lee and others, well, they were products of their time. We can't judge them. People at the time were harshly critical of them. Uh, uh, large numbers of African-Americans uh, at the time were harshly critical of these things going up and saw them for what they were. And so unless you somehow believe African-Americans don't count as people uh, in their time, it's simply not true that these were uncontroversial. Uh, they've always been controversial. One thing that resonates with me about this is that these continue to bubble up throughout our, our history. Uh, and I just wrote a column the other day because Jimmy Carter went into hospice care and I said, you know, the, the, the myth of Jimmy Carter is that he was a lousy president, but he was a good ex-president. And we tend to want to seek a nice Twitter-length analysis of our things. And, and the reality was that on foreign policy, his record was pretty good. He had one issue that it was not actually pretty good, but was more complicated than people make it out to be. But when... Ronald Reagan ran against him. He ran on this myth. And um, meanwhile, you know, then there is a kind of a Reagan veneration machine that said, here is a champion of conservatism. He wasn't. Here's a champion of small government. Government grew under him. He's a champion of balanced budgets. Deficit grew under him, et cetera, et cetera. And he was this affable, genial guy. And yet you have tapes of him talking to Nixon and referring to African UN delegates as monkeys, right? So we are still dealing every single day with myth-making machines. I'll give you one more example before I get your comment, which is that I've encountered a lot uh, just in my line of these things, which is the myth-making machine. It was really an industry around John F. Kennedy, whose certainly uh, whose contributions have been overstated. But they also felt compelled 
to tear down Eisenhower and to tear down Johnson, both of whom were vastly superior as president. So talk a little bit about what the challenges are uh, in sort of sorting things out, you know, now. Well, all those presidents are are ones who've had uh, uh, myths made and remade about them. And it's incredibly contested. The Reagan one's a great example. Uh, Julian Zelizer, uh, my co-editor, his essay in the in the piece is about the Reagan Revolution, and this and, and he notes that that idea of a Reagan Revolution that totally revamped American politics to kind of wipe the slate clean that was an invention of Reagan's PR team itself. And Reagan was, uh, as you know, uh, deeply controversial uh, during his presidency. People forget uh, who venerate him now that he was polling in you know the the low thirties. Uh, in his first term, uh, unemployment skyrocketed in, in those early years. And a lot of that has been been erased by the myth-making of uh, the Reagan campaign. And Democratic policies weren't swept away. Uh, Reagan certainly earned that himself when he uh, tried to take on Social Security. This is when we get the famous saying from Tip O'Neill's aide that Social Security is the third rail in American politics. And like a third rail on a subway car, it's where all the electricity is. And if you touch that rail, you die. And so Reagan himself learned the limits of, of what he could do in that time. But there's been an effort since the Reagan era to totally mythologize him uh, as a man who was universally loved, who swept the, the political site clean, certainly had a lot of significant changes, uh, but, but wasn't quite as revolutionary uh, in, in that total sense uh, as his supporters would like us to believe. No, indeed. Not only was he polling in the 30s for his first two years, where inflation was bubbling up and by the way, being tackled by a Fed chair who was appointed by Carter, right? But the last two years of his presidency, not only was there something in excess of a third of Americans who thought he should be impeached because of Iran-Contra, but if you go and talk, as I did for a couple of the histories I did of the NSC, to the people who worked with him in the NSC, he was non-compass mentis for a lot of that. He would go leave the office at five o'clock and it was like, don't wake him up. We'll make the decisions on our own. And the people who are saying this are not like radical bomb throwers. It's like Frank Carlucci or Colin Powell or, or James Baker and so forth. And so it's a good example because, you know, sometimes if you talk about a myth like American exceptionalism, which you guys talk about and trace back a long time in our history or America First, which is another one that, I, that, that you do, we think of these things as having long ago roots, but they're green shoots, or I, I don't think that, I, I don't know if I'd call them green shoots, but they're sprouting up everywhere now, right? What worries you now? What are the myths of our current time that concern you? Well, I, I think the most pressing one is, is a myth we're seeing kind of being rewritten in real time, which is uh, the, the kind of the reimagining of what happened in January 6th. And we've got an essay in here by the great uh, historian Kathleen Ballou, who, who notes that uh, that insurrection as it unfolded benefited from a lack of understanding that Americans had, that we've had these kind of insurrections before, that we've had a white nationalist violence uh, in American history before. It's often been papered over and forgotten, but there's a, a, a rich history there. Uh, but we're starting to see this you know, rewritten now, there's an effort in, uh, by the part of partisans in Congress to pretend that this was, was not an insurrection. This was not a riot. Uh, something that even, you know, Republican leaders on those days in January of, of 2021 were willing to acknowledge. They've now backtracked on that. So I, I think we're seeing a dangerous effort to, to rewrite the recent past. 
there's a struggle at the heart of this that most people don't realize is going on. There's a battle to determine what history is that happens all the time. I, again, I, from my own experience, the first book I ever did that was a kind of historical book, a section of the book dealt with the war in the Balkans and the, the Dayton Treaty at the end of the war. And there were two groups of people. There was a, a group of people that said Tony Lake was the critical guy, the national security advisor in resolving this. And there's another group that said Dick Holbrook was the critical. And as I was writing it, I was getting calls. You know, people who I didn't know were my friends were like, hey, want to go have a cup of tea? They knew that I was writing the book and they were like campaigning so that the book would lay out in history, or, you know, in just, in just one book who was really the, 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 the person behind it. And, and I'm not sure that most people are aware that that's something that goes on all the time. Because I think a lot of political actors are, are very aware of, uh, of their legacies and how these stories, once they get rooted in, are, are, are kind of hard to change. Right. And so, you know, but the, the, the extension of that is that what we talk about today as disinformation is pernicious because it's promoting something that's not true. But it's actually doubly pernicious to the extent to which it becomes the foundation for a worldview based on a myth. And I don't know if it's overstating it, but you know, we can see we're sort of one election away from determining whether the myth of January 6th you talked about is written one way. Or another way, presumably you're out there, you've talked to students at, at Princeton, but what about when you're just talking to average people? You know, what, what, what do you say to them to say, this is how to sort through this now? This is, I mean, because clearly you intended this book to be a corrective, you know, or so, so what, what do you, what do you, what do you, what is the advice you give them? Well, the advice I think is, is, is fairly obvious. Check. Your sources, uh, who are you getting your information from? Is this someone reliable? Is this someone with a record of delivering honest information? Or is this someone who has a record of bending the truth for, for their own partisan or personal gain? Whenever possible, uh, go to the evidence yourself. Don't get it filtered through someone else. We've seen Kevin McCarthy turn the security footage over to Tucker Carlson, who I'm sure will filter it uh, in a way that advances a certain narrative to his audience. But Wherever we can get the, uh, the the full and unvarnished truth, uh, that's something we need to we need to lean into, and to uh, to check your own priors. Uh, I think uh, this is certainly pronounced on the right, but I think all humans are are prone to this of believing uh, what we already believe a little bit, uh, and so leaning into to things that we already think are half true and, and wanting to seize on evidence that amplifies that. Really interrogate all your priors. I, I think that's good advice. And I think people should know that they are up against industries that are out there trying to create the, the mythology. And when those industries have billions of dollars behind them, in the case of Fox, for example, they have big advantages. But briefly, before we go, I can't help but think that, you know, as we enter the era of AI-assisted chatbots, and deep fakes that making the untrue seem true is going to be much easier 
and that the disinformation business is going to gain huge advantages over what it, because you're going to be able to look at, you know, picture of you kicking your dog and say, oh, Kevin kicks his dog. And it, and, it, and it wasn't you and it wasn't your dog. You don't even have a dog, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to look like it. And for people who want to believe that, they're going to believe it. And that's going to be out there on the web forever. It, it really is. And I, I don't have, I mean, I'm, I'm an historian. My training's in hindsight. So uh, it, it terrifies me to look at the future. But I do think that that's going to be a huge problem because one of the most effective checks right now against misinformation is to, you know, to basically show the receipts. Roll the, uh, you know, roll the tape. But if those receipts can be faked, especially video ones, uh, that's really alarming. Really alarming. But, uh, well, the, you know, the, you, you have an opportunity to write a sequel to this book, I suppose. Kevin Cruz is professor of history and director for the Center for Collaborative History at Princeton. He, along with Julian Zelizer, who is also a historian at Princeton, have produced a book called Myth America, Historians Take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. It's a great book. It is very entertaining. It moves very quickly. There is a real feast of different historical perspectives there from some great uh, historians who are also great writers. Definitely worth your while. Thanks for taking the time, Kevin, to uh, talk to us about the book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll be doing this again next week and every week, along with all our other podcasts for more information. About those, go to the DSR network, and if you want to support it, click membership, become a member. Thanks very much.